0: Three. are willing and able, will stand. Have reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll pick up our reading this morning in verse number three, but the emphasis on the text will be in verses nine through eleven. That'll be the the portion of the text that we take this morning for our sermon. But for context, let us read Philippians 3 3. Thus God speaks For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, and righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let us go to the Lord once more. Father, we come to You once again, because that's what, Father, I pray we do best. I pray, Father, that this is... Not a lot of foreign time for our people, where we come to the Lord together. But a time, Father, where we frequent the throne room of grace, and because we recognize our total dependency upon you, Father. And we recognize that now. Father, we recognize the finiteness of our brains. We recognize, by nature, the deceitfulness of our hearts. Father, we understand that we have blind spots in our spiritual lives. We understand, Father, that we have rebellious areas that need to be corrected father we recognize this morning that we have hearts that need encouraged father we have downcast brothers and sisters that need to be lifted up father we have the ignorant here including myself that need to be instructed in areas father we are so thankful that you have provided a word that is able to do all of those things we recognize that all scripture was god breathed and out of out of him father out of out of you the very word of God comes forth that we might be instructed, that we might be peru- reproved, that we might be corrected, Father, and that we might be fashioned into the men and women that you desire us to be, Father. And we understand that, that great in- the great instrument that you use I mean, is the word of God, but that is only a window, Father, into Christ, that it is Christ that we need this morning. So we pray that the, through the word, Father, and through the instrumentality of the proclamation of your word, that You would show us Him this morning. Show us Your Son, Father. Change us by the glory of the Gospel. Show us Him, Father, in His sufferings. Show us Him in His faithfulness. Show us Him in His death, Father, and show us Him in His resurrection that we too may live in accordance with that reality. Father, we cast ourselves upon You this morning because we cannot accomplish it, Father, in and of ourselves. Father... Even the thirst, the hunger, the pursuit after holiness and righteousness, we recognize, Father, is not, is not native to us. So we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would come. Rest upon this place, Father. Give us a reverence, yet at the same time a joy. Give us a mind, Father, that is stayed upon Your Word. And, Father, help us to receive it with the utmost joy. Father, we have desires and what would be accomplished in the next hour. but We submit our desires to yours and pray that you would accomplish what you desire, Father, in our hearts, from the greatest to the least of us, from the oldest to the youngest, that you would accomplish great and mighty and eternal things as we go now to your word. So, Father, help me as I proclaim, convict even my own heart, make me like Christ. Do the same for those that hear. Help us to receive it with the utmost joy in Christ. By the power of your spirit we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. If you're with us today for the first time, and you've not followed us maybe in previous sermons, we've simply taken up. The Book of Philippians, as a totality. So we began months ago, Philippians chapter number one, and we find ourselves here in Philippians chapter number three, particularly verses nine through eleven, and that's going to be the portion of the text that we strive to understand today. It was two weeks ago now that I dealt with a previous text. A brother um, stood in for us last week as we were away. We thank God for that and trust that the Lord was honored and that you were edified. And what a joy it is to be back with you and to bring to you the Word of God uh, once again. But It was two weeks ago now that we dealt with his previous text, and in that exposition, I referenced Christ's words in Matthew at one point. It may seem like just a a passing comment. It wasn't something that we spent a great deal of time on, but I would like to call your attention to it today as well. And just briefly, so you don't necessarily need to turn there, but you can if you'd like to. We're going to get Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Um, In Matthew 13, what you find is a whole host of parables that our Lord brings to the ears of His disciples and the crowds that may be um, around as well. And those parables are particularly pertaining to the nature of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of, of God. And in Matthew 13:44, Jesus gives this parabolic insight into the nature of the kingdom. He says, "Again, why because he's already been telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like?" He says in verse 44, "Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid." And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christ illustrates for us what the kingdom of heaven is like um, with these words. And in this particular, these two particular um, illustrations... He says the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a man who's amassed a wealth, possibly and probably a great wealth, given the nature of the parable. Wealth, no doubt, that pertains to money, to land, to property, possibly barns, barns, and bigger barns. Some inherited, no doubt, but I imagine at least part of it earned. Something that he had labored after, toiled after a life that he had built in and of himself or someone else had built up for him, possibly a father, and he was the inheritor of that. But he has a great treasure. That's the comparison or the contrast Um, there. He has a great treasure in that. Men often find great treasure no doubt, in the things of this world. And it's, and it's a, a strange dynamic, really. Why? Because what we have in this world truly is a treasure. It's common grace. God gave the man all of those things, yet at the same time, the way that a man receives those things will um, determine whether or not they are truly valuable or possibly even um, damaging to his life and soul. Apparently, this man had received them in an inappropriate manner. At some point in his life, he finds a treasure. And the text says that he hides it in a field. That he comes to the conclusion, a settled judgment, that the treasure is great. It's so great that when he gathers up all of his wealth, his houses, his barns, his livestock, his cattle, everything, he gathers it all up and he, he determines that it pales in comparison to what he finds that he had hidden in the field. So what does he do? He is provoked for the joy of that treasure to sell everything that he has so that he can have, receive, hold, call it his own, that great treasure. You can imagine that man this morning had friends. You can imagine that he had family. You can imagine that he had business partners. You can imagine that he had other relationships. You can imagine a man like that yourself. You know men, you know women of great wealth, of great health, of great prosperity, with all sorts of things. What would it be like this morning if they showed up? A brother, a sister, a mother, a father, and said to you, you know, all those things that I had, all those things that I loved, all those things that you enjoyed, and I sold them all. (laughs) And I sold them all for this. I can imagine this morning you would perk up in your ears, and in your heart, and in your mind, and you would want to know why. Well, the text tells us why. And this morning, I want the text to tell us further why. I want you to imagine this morning that this man is Paul. Now, Jesus wasn't alluding to Paul. Jesus was alluding to a gospel um, reality, a spiritual reality that is true of all of us. who, who in some, Who uh, is true of us uh, in some sense as we adhere, um, receive, take hold of Christ. This is true of all of us. But this morning, I think that Paul in Philippians chapter number 3 illustrates this man possibly better than us all. Why? Because the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 um, is compelled out of love for the church at Philippi to launch into an autobiography of himself. To prove um, experientially that the law of God cannot be held to in such a fashion to attain any status or righteousness with God. So, in an effort to disavow the Judaizers and the heretics of the day, not only does he identify them by name, um, as the concision, the mutilators, not only of the flesh, but of souls... He carries on to dismantle their entire argument, arguing that if anybody could have attained to the righteousness of the law by the mere strength of their um, arm or by the keeping of the law, then it was me. And Paul is going to render them totally hopeless. So he begins the catalog in Philippians 3 all of his accomplishments, his advantages, that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. All of these things he says, I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. If anybody could have attained to a status to be accepted by God, it was me. And what he's saying to the church at Philippi and what he's saying to the Judaizers, if that's the case, then you have no hope either. And you have no hope either. Paul then argues that at one point, he gathers all of those things up, puts them in a pile, and something happens within his heart and his mind, within his inner man and his soul, that he comes to the judgment, uh, the settled judgment inside himself, that it, it all means nothing. And not only does it all mean nothing, but not only is it not advantage, it's somewhat of a disadvantage. Why? Because it deceives him to thinking that he's right with God when he's not. That it's actually destroying his soul. It's not neutral, you know? False Gospels are not neutral. And they're not something that we can toy around with. It's not, you know, we don't just let bygones be bygones, you know? And if you want to believe that, then that's fine as long as you don't hurt anybody else. False Gospels always hurt. They're damaging and they're they are not advantages, they're disadvantages, they're not neutral, they are harmful, so Paul takes it on as his task. Why? Because God had brought him to the end of himself such that all of the um, all of the property, the, the the promises, the prestige, the power, the, the everything that Paul had gained up to that point, which would have been towering above all the rest. You can imagine that day. That Christ's Reveals himself to him. And he comes to that conclusion. And he goes to his brother who's a Jew. He goes to his mother and his father. He goes to his rabbi. He goes to his teachers. And he says, I'm giving it all up. You can imagine the astonishment on their faces. What must they have thought? What would they have said? No doubt they would have said "Why?" And Paul would have said, for Christ. That treasure that's in the field. Okay, I understand the treasure that's in the field. But what is it about Christ that would cause you to come to the conclusion that he is more valuable than all the rest? The status, the prestige, the power, the property, the lands, the future, your family. Like what about him is more important than all of that? I want to give you that this morning. That in this text, if we were engaging with Paul in some way, Paul has now made the argument that he is leaving and abandoning all of that. Why? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In verse number A, why? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So we might ask that question this morning. Paul, why? What about Him? What about Him enticed you so? What about being found in Him drew you away from all natural pleasures and delights in this world that your ultimate delight would be in Him? And not only that, but you would suffer the loss of all things and even not only suffer the loss of all things, but subject yourself to some of the most heinous persecution in all the world. You ever see a man suffer for Christ? You ever see a man suffer and wonder why? Paul's going to tell you a little bit about that this morning. And I want to give to you those blessings that Paul... Has, has come to, in his own mind and thinking, at least part of them, and concluded um, that the excellence of the knowledge of Christ is worthy of the abandonment of all things. What are those things? Number one, a righteousness not his own. I'm going to give you the other two ahead of time. Number two, a relationship with Christ. And number three, the promise and hope of a resurrected body. And I am going to give to you all of these in one, and it's going to be quite the task this morning. Um, they're going to be brief. Um, but I want to give it to you. Why? Because I think that this also encompasses and pictures the totality of the Christian life. What you see from verses 3 through 11, and even particularly 9 through 11, is the embodiment of the Christian life. You see a man who is pursuing his own righteousness and status before God. You see a man that meets Christ. Christ reveals himself, he turns 180 degrees total different direction. Why? Um, Because he is justified by Christ, given a righteousness not his own. Then he pursues Christ in that relationship through fellowship with him, clinging to the hope of a final resurrection in which you'll see him face to face and be just like him. And this is a package deal. In some sense, Paul is arguing all of Christian life. I'm in this. Why, Paul? Because all that is in this life, all that is in Christ, not only past, but present and future, it's all worth it. So number one, um, what is that cardinal blessing that Paul has come to conclude as he, as he pursues Christ? It's worthy of the abandonment of all things. Number one, it's a righteousness, not his own. It's a righteousness, not his own. What would provoke him to abandon everything? It is a perfect righteousness afforded to believers, and particularly Paul, as he stands before God. This would be an argument that carry gravity and weight with the apostle. Why? Because if you look back on verses three through seven, what you see is this is exactly what Paul is striving after in his own flesh. Paul is a man in pursuit of righteousness, but as we even um, Discoursed a little bit about in Sunday school this morning. Words matter. And what one thing means to one person when you say salvation in respect to a Jehovah Witness, and you use grace and faith, we mean something completely different when we're talking about from a, a, a Christ Bible perspective and even a biblical perspective. We use the same words, but we don't mean the same thing. And that's exactly what Paul is struggling with in this moment as he meets Christ. Why? Because he had defined righteousness in such a fashion that it left him hopeless without Christ in that pursuit. We might ask just a very basic question this morning. Verse number nine. Be found in him, that's what the text says, that that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And for the little ones this morning and maybe for the big ones, (laughs) we may ask just the most simple question this morning, what do we mean by righteousness? Why? Because it is that righteousness that comes from God that Paul saw an incalculable worth that left him to abandon all things for that. So very simply this morning, what is righteousness? I'm going to give you a definition. Most basically, a right standing before God and His law. In other words, to have righteousness is to have acceptance with God as right or just in the full light of God's demands that are expressed either in His law, His revelation, or those laws that are written upon your heart by nature. Thus, God would treat you with favor. Why? Because you're in a right standing with Him. And remember, this is Paul's pursuit. He's, he's saying concerning the righteousness, which is the law, in verse number 6, I was blameless. We said in two weeks ago in regard to that, what does Paul mean he was blameless? Does it mean that he was perfect before God? No. What he means is that he was in some sense perfect before man. He means that as a Pharisee, in respect to the letter of the law and its moral demand, his external conduct was such that no one could lay a finger on him and say, um, he's broken the law. Now, he's a man with such integrity that no man, even the greatest of the Jews, could take hold of him and say, you've broken this law or that law. You've disqualified yourself. He was blameless according to the external nature of the law. The traditions of men, as well as, as far as we can tell, even the moral law given in the uh, Mosaic Code. Paul is arguing, though, from a righteous perspective, from a godly perspective, from a saved perspective, That true righteousness goes deeper than that. It's not enough, he argues, to be examined by a court in Israel and be found blameless. But there's coming a day in which every man, every woman, every child will stand before the true and living God and in that moment, the question will be, will you be blameless? Not only as He examines you according to the external standard of the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, but as, as He does with a, as a skillful surgeon in the Sermon on the Mount, He will turn it on its head and say, have you ever hated your brother without cause? Then you're a murderer. He'll look and he'll say, have you ever lusted after a woman in your own heart? Then you're an adulterer. When you stand before the true and living God and he scrutinizes not only your hands but your heart, what will he find? And the question is, is will he say blameless? Will you find favor with God there all alone by yourself, standing in the presence of the Creator God, King of Kings, heaven, uh, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Paul, in his natural state, has an awareness. As we all do, of God's existence and His accountability to Him, He's been fashioned for God um, to commune with God. He knows that He is guilty before God. Romans chapter one and chapter two. He knows that 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 God is uh, that, that that inherently within man is this desire to commune with a, with a deity. Acts chapter seventeen, and that, that he desires that. So Paul, in his natural state, pursues a righteousness that is his own. Because he knows he's wrong with God. He desires to commune with God. Thus, in his own strength, his skill, and according to the law, he pursues a righteousness to earn favor with God. Let me just say that's true of all men. This morning, I don't need to convince you that God exists. You know He does. I don't need to convince you that you are apart from God. You know that you are outside of Christ and you labor long and hard, if you've not deadened your conscience um, through the suppression of righteousness in sin, um, you know that you are wrong with God. But at some point in Paul's life, and he even illustrates that for us, in Romans 7, 7, when he writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Paul understands the right use of the law. As he sees Christ, he understands that the law was given not to make men right with God, but to make men um, blamed, uh, full of blame before God. That it was a tutor. It was a, a teacher. That the law was given so that man would know that he is not right with God. And he would know that he's not right with God, not only in his hands, but in his heart. That's why in Romans 7, 7, he goes on to say, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Paul is, is convicted of idolatry in that moment. And he dies in himself as he understands that when I, that, that even though I have all of Philippians 3, 3-7, when I stand before him, my heart will not be blameless. I will not stand before God except it. That's Paul's great pursuit, and one of the reasons that he finds this such a great treasure is that everything that he has been laboring for and longing after he finds in Christ. I'm a guiltless heart, a guiltless hands, and true communion with God. Thus Paul says that I may gain Christ and being found in him, not having my own righteousness. It is a righteousness, but it's not a righteousness really at all. This morning, if you're laboring after Christ as a good and a moral young man, a good and a moral young woman, and think that that's going to accrue any stature with God, Paul says, you're fooling yourself. So why leave it all, Paul? Because I found a righteousness which is from God. That's what he says in verse number 9 which is from the law, righteousness which he abandons, the righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul finds in Christ a righteousness not his own, a righteousness that will free him from true accountability to God and will free him from the guilt that he has in rebellion against God and bring him into true communion with God. That's what he's arguing here. Paul's contrasting two different kinds of righteousness. One which is not really a righteousness at all. One which is from the law, or man. And one which is from God. And only one saves, he argues. Only one, man, one reconciles man to God. And really when you boil it down, um, that is, those are um, the summation of all religious systems in the world. Um, you boil down Christianity... Versus every other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, within Christianity, apostate Judaism, you name it, it's all the same. It's just branded different. It's works of the law. Christianity is a religion of divine accomplishment. It is from God. God does the work. God gives the righteousness. God accomplishes it on our behalf. The law could not accomplish that. Paul is brought, as he sees Christ, he sees his misuse of the law. And he sees, his under, he sees in it an understanding of Christ that there is a righteousness that he must have if he's going to stand um, in, in acceptance and favor with God. Thus, he clings to Christ. What, but what is this righteousness? It is a righteousness that was earned by Jesus Christ in His life and afforded to us by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as, those, um, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, men know they're outside of God. How, does, how, do, how do we understand how to, how, to get, how to reconcile with God? For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That Jesus Christ was made Sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 5.19 So by the obedience of one shall many be constituted righteous. That Christ is the basis of our righteousness. If we have any, it's Christ and Christ alone. Approximately 33 years of His life of total ex- obedience, perfect life, and external conformity to the law written upon the heart, the law given to Moses, and every thought, every intent, every attitude, every deed, Jesus Christ fulfills the totality of the law. Where Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Where where Israel failed, the true Israel will be faithful. And in His death, He, he affords taking upon Himself the guilt of all man That He affords that righteousness earned through the works of the law Himself. He affords that to all who will believe. Such that when you, by faith, come to Him believing, trusting, resting in Christ's work, He affords to you Christ's righteousness. And standing in Christ, in Christ's righteousness, you stand before God complete, whole, forgiven, guiltless, and your, your, your sins nailed to that old tree. That's what Paul is arguing. when you, He gathered together with those men uh, that, that, that morning, that evening. He gathered with his family and he said, I'm giving it all up. And they said, why? For Christ? What about Christ? I've been laboring for for For, for decades to try to appease the Father, to make Him love me. And His love is already manifested in Christ. I've been earning a righteousness, which is not a righteousness at all. It's a righteousness from the law. And I have no acceptance with God. But in Christ, I found a righteousness that was alien to me. It was foreign, but it was freely given by grace through faith. And when I saw Christ, I saw everything that I had been aiming for, but I had been aiming wrong. Therefore, I sold it all for that treasure that was there in the field. I came, Paul argues, in different places. I came as a poor man in need of bread. I came as a hungry man in need of food. I came as, as a thirsty man in need of water. I came as a, a toilsome, weary man in need of rest. And I found that in Christ. I found acceptance and reconciliation with God in this right understanding of Christ and His righteousness. When Paul comes to Christ, Paul receives a righteousness that is not his own. He receives the very righteousness of Christ. Why? Because he's placed in Him. And thus he has union and communion with Christ. How? By grace through faith. What is this righteousness? It is a right understanding, or it is a right status before God, is to be reconciled with Him, is to be forgiven of all sins and brought truly into union and communion with Him. And that's the truth still today. That's not only true for Paul. That if you are going to be reconciled, you know today that you are accountable to God. You know today that if you're outside of Christ, you need to be reconciled with Him. And the reality is that there is a treasure in the field. If you'll sell everything that you have, spiritually speaking, and cling to Him, you'll have a righteousness which is not your own, and you'll, be, and you'll be in Christ, in right standing before God, accepted with favor on the basis of Christ's work, and Christ alone receive it by faith. Paul is saying, number one, you want to know what about Christ I love? What I delight in? What makes everything else pale in comparison? Number one, I have a righteousness which is from God by faith. I could not have accrued it on my own. I'm tired of laboring. I'm resting in Him and in Him and His work alone. Does that mean that He stops working? No, but now it's out of a gratitude of hearts. We see that number two. Somebody may go on in that moment and say, okay, Paul, we understand that. That's amazing. What else? Is there anything else that you might say Paul may say, well, that's just the beginning. We could be here for days. And that's the truth. The riches and blessings that are in Christ are incalculable because they're inexhaustible. And that you in Christ, Peter argues in one of his letters, have been given every divine blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And that we are just spending the rest of our lives in this life, and no doubt in eternity, unveiling... Uh, digging out that treasure in the field with our shovels, with our hands, with sticks, with whatever we can find. We're unveiling that treasure and that is buried there in the field and we're finding more of Christ. Paul is going to argue, number two, that that happens in a relationship with Christ. That when, yes, verse number 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His... Death. Paul, what else is it that you love? I love that whenever I came to Christ, I found not only a righteousness of my own, but whenever I was truly united with Him, that in that union, I found communion with the God of heaven and earth. And I mean that true communion. We could actually kind of outline this this morning in verse number nine as justification by faith, uh, by grace through faith alone. Verse number 10 could be sanctification, and verse number 11 could be glorification. That in verse number 9, he found a righteousness not his own. He was justified before God. Why so that? Verse number 10. Catch that word, that. So that. In order that. That there was actually a reason that God saved you. Not only to save you quantitatively for all of human history and beyond, for all eternity. But He actually saved you, temporally, here and now, in this life, so that. Why? So that you may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and in the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed even to His death. Paul, what about Him provokes you to not only abandon it all, but to leave it all behind? I found Christ's righteousness in Christ, but also... I continue in a covenantal relationship with Him and He continues to reveal Himself cultivating in me character through the process of sanctification that I wouldn't trade for all the world. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm not going back and selling the treasure. Um, that's what Paul is arguing in this verse in more than one way. He says in verse 10 that I may know Him. And I just want to, to, to just reemphasize to you something that I reemphasize often. And maybe it's because I struggle with it in my own heart and thinking. Maybe it's because I find myself with a tendency to forget this. is, That when we are brought into union with Christ and we are united with Him, that we are brought into a truly lively relationship with our Lord. Alright? That we are brought into a truly lively, living relationship with our Lord, primarily through our relationship with Him by the Spirit in the Word and through prayer. That the knowledge of Christ here is not just a data dump. It's not just a a a a, a compilation of of data or content over a period of time. That when he speaks of the knowledge of Christ that I may know Him, Um, Paul is no doubt here as well as many other places speaking of an overwhelmingly personal, intimate, and relational knowledge of of true communion with Christ by the power of the Spirit through the means that He has provided. It means that this is more than a mere mental assent or knowing some isolated data about our Lord. And there's, again, just the the need to reemphasize this because this is a real danger maybe in our camp, maybe in other camps, to make Christianity totally cerebral. The danger of substituting knowledge about Christ for truly personal experiential knowledge of Christ. It is the attitude of having sound theology rather than than going to the Scriptures in order to know God, to admire Him, to bow down before Him and to walk with Christ. The danger is is that you'll, um, you'll know Jesus Christ in the same way that you know George Washington. Abraham Lincoln, Stonewall Jackson. That you'll go to the scriptures, that you'll go to the scriptures the same way that you go to these other historical documents. And you'll know them in your minds. But are you to know Christ the same way that you know Abraham Lincoln? Knowing things about him and maybe even capturing his mind and his life in many ways why because of all the data. But is that the way that Paul knows Christ? Is that the way that you know Christ? Is that the way that Christ says that His sheep will know Him? John Owen, that great Puritan says, What am I the better? If I can dispute that Christ is God, yet have no sense of sweetness in my heart, from hence that He is a God in covenant with my soul. What does it matter if I can prove that Christ is God? If I don't have any sense of Him being my God. That's what Paul's going to argue being in Christ. He's going to argue that he is his God. We're not arguing this morning for a a constitution of God or the existence of God. We are arguing with, that Paul is arguing the reality that, that, that in Christ, Christ became Paul's God. And that Paul covenantally is his sheep. And he hears his voice and he knows him. John 10 verses 14 through 15. That Paul had a living, dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He experienced delightful communion through the Word, through prayer, through the means of fellowship. And it changed him all the better. Paul is not speaking of a one-time conversion experience that was worth it all, but in that conversion experience, the Spirit of God was given such that he would remain with Paul throughout his life, continually showing him Christ through the Word, by the power of the Spirit, bringing him into union and even further union and communion with Christ, and unearthing those, 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 that treasure that is buried there in the fields. But Paul goes on further to argue two particular ways in which he seeks to know Christ more. That there's more than this, but there's not less than this. And he arguably takes the, most, the two most important doctrines, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, and he expresses a personal desire to know Christ more in relationship to those to fellowship with God in those things. what well, In Christ's death as well as in Christ's resurrection. And not only resurrection in the sense of a coming resurrection on that final day. He's going to argue that in verse number 11. But that there is a way to experientially fellowship with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of Christ. To know the power of His resurrection in the Christian life. So when we talk about sanctification here. That Paul abandons it all because of his relationship with Christ. Why? So that he may know Christ in the power of His resurrection. What Paul is arguing here is with reference to the Spirit's work in keeping Him, growing Him, sanctifying Him, setting Him apart by giving Him His Spirit. It's a gracious act of God to send His Spirit to every believer. Uniting them to Christ. And constantly supplying himself to the root as life does to the branch, John 15. So he says that, so so the doctrine of sanctification here in this verse is wrapped up in these two phrases. Number one, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. And Paul uses this, again, in this passage, not to speak of a coming resurrection from the dead, but Paul overwhelmingly uses it more to actually speak of the lively, life of the believer uh, in sanctification. For example, Romans 6 verse 4. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He goes on to say things like, death no longer has dominion over you, that you are alive unto God. So he says later, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. That Paul is arguing presently that the effect of God's resurrection power was that you were buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And in that resurrection life, the power that is given to you through the Spirit, you actually mortify the deeds of the flesh, kill the old man that the new man may live. Ephesians 1:17 argues the same thing that according to the knowledge of God uh, the, he goes on to say that what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 3:16 through 20 that's Paul's prayer as well. Colossians 1:9 through 11 we see that in the increasing knowledge of God. There is a power that we might attain and live in the power of that Spirit so that we might cultivate graces such as patience, long-suffering, kindness, and all sorts of the fruit of the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is that there is a real power that is available in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that is, that is at work in you now. That not only are we waiting in hope of that great and glorious day, but that we too have already been raised from the dead. And that the Spirit of God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, is able to now destroy sin in your body, not in an ultimate sense, but in a progressive sense. You have the power given to you by the Spirit of God that is alive in you to destroy, to mortify, to to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And to, to live in victory with and for Christ. And this is Paul's desire. Paul's desire is, is that I may know more of this. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and subsequently you in Ephesians 3 is that you may know that. Paul is saying the law never accomplished that in me. It could never do that. I remained under it. Romans chapter 7, I remained under it. I could not defeat the sin in my life, covetousness. It gripped me. But when I found Christ, I found the power in the excellence of the knowledge of Christ that enabled me to to please God in, in a way that the law never could. He found... Power to destroy sin in his life. He found power to endure trials and tribulation. He found power to preach the Gospel. He found power to lay his life down in service. And Paul is saying, I long for more of that power. I long for that walk. I long for that fellowship. I long to know Christ more in that power. Number two, in the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His Death. Philippians chapter 3, he goes on to say um, that his desire is to be found in him not having his own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is God, from God by faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul is going to argue as well that there is a way to know Christ in suffering. Um, that is not available in any other portion. And it's actually going to be that which Paul is going to pursue, even joyfully, that he may know Christ in a deeper fashion. Part of the sanctifying process for the believer is actually enduring sufferings akin to Christ Himself. That's what Paul's arguing if you'll remember back in Philippians 1.29, we've already argued that this is the lot for the Christian. Right? That it's not only been granted to you to believe on Christ, but Paul argues there, but also to suffer for His namesake. That the Christian in John chapter 15, Christ argues that we'll, they will be persecuted. Why? Because they persecuted me. You will be persecuted. Why? Because as you're being conformed to Christ and the power of His resurrection and you're living a godly life in Christ Jesus, know this, they will hate you. Why? Because they hated me. You will exhibit the divine nature not in a holier-than-thou manner, but in a spirit-wrought cultivation of the very character of God through the knowledge of Him in such a way that the world will be convicted and incited to anger such that they will kill you just as they killed me. That's his argument. So Paul says that it takes form not only in suffering, but even being conformed to Christ in His death. 2 Corinthians 4.10 verse 11 we see that this truth as well. Paul says, "Always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh." Do you get that? that Christ lives and proclaims, testifies, and illustrates His divine presence through the suffering of the saints. He goes on to say, So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Why? Because it proclaims the reality of Christ in a way. It preaches the gospel in a way. It preaches the death of Christ in a way that words cannot. In other words, when you looked at Paul, you were actually able to see in his body, in his life, The very death of Christ and the dying of Jesus in His actions. And the suffering that Paul endured for Christ was evident in his life and in his body. When people see that type of testimony, Paul argues they're seeing Christ. It's a testimony to and for Christ. And not only that, but when they see us get up, they see too the life of Christ. The very power of the resurrection. That the power of the resurrection is necessary even for the suffering and dying. It seems to be reversed, doesn't it? Generally, suffering and dying comes first and then the resurrection. But the reality is is that without the resurrection power and the lively uh, union of Christ and the power of the Spirit flowing through that branch, you will never suffer and die. Why? Because you by nature, me by nature need the Spirit of God to liberate us from the very self-centeredness of ourselves. That we need Christ and all that He has to die to ourselves, thus that we might suffer for His name's sake. Such He, he brings us in justification, gives us a righteousness of our own, brings us in union with Him, gives us the power of the Spirit. Why? That we may be alive so that we may die. That you and I may now have the power to forsake ourselves and die daily taking up our cross and following Jesus. Why? Because all the world needs to know that there is a God in heaven and His name is Christ. That's the idea. There's also another perspective here. Another aspect lies in the fact that there is simply fellowship with Christ there. That Paul that, that that Christ has a purpose in our suffering, to proclaim the death of Christ till he comes, that others may see. But there is too a personal intimacy that is born in suffering with Christ that can no that, 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 that no one will understand, that we cannot understand until we suffer like him and suffer in him and suffer with him. That when we suffer for Christ's sake, there is true communion with Christ there. When we suffer for the same cause of righteousness that Jesus suffered, He meets us in that suffering. That there is a unique intimacy that we have with Christ. A fellowship, He argues here. A communion when we share in His sufferings. And we understand that. As I mentioned earlier, remember? That the family preaches spiritual realities. God has given to us so much in common grace that... That goes unseen, because we don't have spiritual eyes. That in just the love of a mother and the love of a father and the love of a child, the the, the, the brother sister connection, even apart from Christ, it, it, it is it is it is created and fashioned for some divine accomplishment that it may preach some eternal reality. The marriage, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. That we see in these natural relationships that they were even fashioned to proclaim eternal realities. You know, And that is true too in suffering. In the compassion, the companionship that we have with one another. The unique intimacy of suffering together. Even the natural man understands that. Right? One Christian writer writes, to suffer together creates pure fellow feeling. And even to labor together. Companionship in sorrow forms the most enduring ties. End quote. And what he's saying is, he's saying that there's a bond that's forged in labor together that is strong beyond measure. And you should know that. If you've labored with a man, a woman, a brother in Christ, held each other up in prayer as you've witnessed together, served together, given the gospel together, that it forms this bond between you that, that doesn't happen among common relationships. What he's arguing here is that there is a different type maybe even a deeper bond that is formed in shared suffering. And you know that. You know that when you've lost a mother. You know that when you've lost a father. You know that when you've lost a child. You know that there are things that you want to say, there are things that you want to to, to, to that, 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 that mean absolutely nothing. Um they come and and you, you, the the, the, the But when you have someone that enters into the room, that too has lost in a similar fashion, the moment is, Mm -hmm. a deep moment is born even when words cannot express. When you understand, make eye connection, or, or just feel with one another in that moment, I can tell you, that's happened for Mandy and I in our loss. And that's happened in, in the loss of my, my father. You know, I didn't even I didn't have a father growing up. And I didn't even think I'd, I'd cry when he died. Something God did in my heart just broke me whenever I found out that he was gone. You know? And you want to call your brother, you want to comfort him, but what words do you say? You know? But as we gather together, no words are said, and there's this embrace of suffering together in this common fashion that brings you closer. You know? Mandy and I have done the same in our loss. You know? Like you the part of us wants to, wants to just 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 say something for saying something's sake, but I don't know how many times we've just sat there with one another in fellowship, shared with one another, well, because nothing needed to be said, but tears said it all. Why? Because we had the same loss. We suffered the same affliction. And that in marriage, and that, that in marriage brought us together, that union even closer together today than, than, than on that first day we made covenant together. This is true too of Christ. Second Corinthians 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations. That He is able to sympathize in those moments. Why? Because Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. It was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, church, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That through prayer, we can have true communion with God. Because we've been reconciled through His Son. And He is a Son who knows, sympathizes with us. Why? Because He was like us in all points. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, run to Him. Why? Because He can help for mercy, for grace in a time of need. But at the same time, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul continues and says that that God who comforts us in all of our tribulation does so that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we are comforted ourselves by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so the consolation also abounds through Christ. Paul is saying, I'm not worried about you. And as the suffering comes, I know that Christ will meet you there. He can sympathize with your infirmities. And one of the greatest ways He will minister to the church there at Corinth is going to be through the consolation that He gives you because you're going to share it with one another. And there's going to be just such the presence of Christ among the people of God as they share in, in, in shared suffering that we commune with one another, but we also commune with Christ. That the ministry of Christ, he's arguing, I have no doubt will abound in consolation in the suffering of the saints. You will know Christ in a deeper way because of the shared loss and the suffering for His name's sake than I could ever teach you about in a two-hour lecture or a semester module. Or a 10 year endeavor. There is something about suffering together in like fashion that forges bonds um, that are eternal. And he argues that primarily that happens even with Christ. You say, explain that to me. I have no clue. I have no clue. But there is a reality in which the Spirit brings Christ to us in those moments. And we and as we suffer, we recognize the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave on behalf of sinners like us. As we go through um, somewhat of a a gethsemane, we through agony, through suffering for doing the will of God, that we suffer like Him, we share with Him, and He shares with us, and this union is tighter than it ever had been before. Why? Because we are being conformed to His death. And in that that conforming to His death, we are becoming more like Him and knowing Him in a deeper fashion. Thus, the comfort is greater. The peace is eternal. And when words seem to, to fail us, Christ's presence does not. And Christ's presence among us does not. Paul is saying... You want to know, like one of the great blessings that I have, that I wouldn't trade all the world for. I sold it, and, I, and, I, and I'm not taking it back and buying it back. You know, one of those great treasures. It's knowing Christ in that, knowing Christ like that, fellowshiping with Him in the sufferings, as painful as it is. The comfort is eternal, and I wouldn't trade it for all the world. And in some sense, that's why. I sold it. So number one. Paul. A righteousness which was not my own. Bringing me into union with Christ. Why? So, number two, I could commune with, commune with Him. In the power of His resurrection, living the life that I never would have lived according to the law, but now have the right use of the law out of the gratitude of heart because of the grace that God has given me, I'm laboring to live in the reality of the life that He has given me. And I find that most often in the sufferings. As I'm conformed even to His death. I find a measure of Christ I would never have found otherwise. And don't you find that true in the saints? Don't you find that the sweetest, most joyful and peaceful of Christians and true saints of God are those who have endured the most trying of difficulties? Don't you find that just such an anomaly in our American culture um, who even which has even invaded the Christian culture um, with the idol of comfort and ease. Pain is bad. Suffering is wrong. Prosperity gospel. It must mean I don't have enough faith. Um, but it may be that we have little dynamic reality in our lives and the power of the resurrection because we've had truly too little suffering. And it's not that we welcome it. Why? Because it's not that, that, that we, we, we yearn for it in, in the sense of we enjoy pain sadistically. Because Paul is not arguing that it takes the pain away. Paul is arguing that the pain drives him in his weakness to Christ. That actually we have a natural aversion to pain. And that in that pain, we are driven to Christ in a way to commune with Him and that otherwise would not be formed. That it may be that we have a shallow understanding in American Christianity, maybe even in our own lives, um, because we have suffered very little. Being conformed not to Him in His death and thereby not knowing truly the power of His resurrection. Not conformed to the will of God to live in such a way that is in opposition to this world. We want to offend nobody because we think that that will keep them away from our churches. Yet living a life without offense living a life without the gospel really r- removes any distinction that the church has we must bear the divine character in nature not in a holier than thou type of way but in a walk in that, but in walking with Christ he cultivates through that communion this character that is otherworldly and inevitably what will happen it will rub against the culture if we live life with them and as they hate us, they will persecute us. And in that persecution, we will find comfort in the sufferings of Christ like never before. We will find resurrection power there and victory there that cannot be forged in, in, on any other battlefields. May we unearth those treasures as we dig out as it's buried there in the field. Number three, very briefly, maybe even most importantly, but very briefly. Number three, Paul What is it about Christ that would cause you to leave it all? Number three, the hope and promise of a resurrection body. The hope and promise of a resurrection body. We not only taste Christ's sufficiency and justification, making it worth the sale. Not only do we experience Christ's fellowship and sanctification making it worth the abandonment, but we too also will enjoy Christ's presence in the hope of glorification for all eternity. And Paul, oftentimes, even in the text that we've often that we've, that we've referenced already, this is often a, a pattern in Paul's writings. For example, in Romans 8, 16, and 17, he argues that if we are indeed His children, we will suffer for Him. Why? So that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul, how will you endure the suffering? How will you endure the trials and the tribulation? Well, Paul will often cling, as do the Old Testament writers, to to, to the resurrection of The body. That eternal life. As uh, David said in Psalm 17, 15 that Nathan read for us at the opening of the sermon service. He says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. Job has been reading through that Old Testament Scripture and Greg's been taking us through that. We've just seen the sufferings of Job. You ever wonder how he endured it all? He says in Job 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. And He shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, He says, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He says, I'm going to die. My skin's going to rot. And I will be raised. And I can barely contain it within my heart, even in the midst of sufferings. And it may be that those sufferings are actually what drives that hope. That's what you see constantly throughout the Scriptures, particularly in Paul in David, in Job, that it, are, it is, it is, the, it is the, the bearing of those infirmities, those afflictions, those sufferings for the name of God that, that, that draws them closer to Christ, but even um, closer to the resurrection from the dead. Psalm 27, David says, I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart. He's honest. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says that if this were not the hope, I would have given up. I would have given up. I would have given up. Thus, this is in part, and maybe partly most of the whole, that it is that great hope that Paul says, He says that in verse number 11, that if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, there is also a so that, or in order that. Being conformed to His death in order that, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead or out from under the dead, that I may see His face. How will you endure? How will you struggle? How will you make it through the suffering? How will you um, endure the difficulty? You will do it by clinging to the hope of His eternal presence. By looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And there is a coming day in which it will all end, brothers and sisters. With all the pain, all the difficulty, all the sin, we will put off this mortality for immortality and with an unbridled, unrestrained, glorified body, finally and fully give Him the worship that is due His name. Finally, he received the number. From the host of heaven out of every nation, tribe, and tongue who can sing these great hymns in a worthy manner to be sung in His presence. Finally, we'll perform an act out of total gratitude to Savior. There will be no more need for dying to self anymore. Why? Because our souls will be fully entangled and enraptured with His presence in an unbridled fashion. What a day that will be! What great hope we have. Some of the greatest difficulty I have in this body is getting up here knowing I can't preach a sermon worthy of His name. I can't pastor like like He deserves. I can't counsel in a way that, that, that I think in my natural flesh, just ultimately honors and glories. Why? Because I'm so entangled with myself. It's so difficult to die to self on some days. What a day that will be when I can finally sing a song that's worthy of his name. What a day that will be when we can gather as a church and without the mingling of sin finally give the Savior of all the world who died on our behalf to give us a righteousness not our own so that He could have a people for Himself. On that great day, He will finally in all fullness have a people for Himself. What a day! What a hope! Thus, what suffering is worth it? If it brings me to that, that I may know Him in that glory, then so be it. What a searching text this morning as we wrestle with the reality of true Christianity and true religion. Most will say, even the common man, the Bible brings to us something that is commendable. Talking about the attributes and the morals of Christ. Um. But when you get to talking to a believer about true Christianity and the fact that there was a day in which you sold it all and gave it to Christ and you're still urging on, you know? And that you hope you ever talked to anybody about that? It's just been like, suffering has been one of the greatest things that God has ever accomplished in my life. As I'm afflicted for Him, I commune with Him in the sweetest of fashion. There's so much joy there. I find the power of His resurrection to get up day in and day out through all the pain, all the difficulty, you know. Like I look back and I wouldn't trade it all for the world. I sold it and I'm keeping on. I'm moving forward until that great day whenever I, I finally see Him face to face and I can give Him the worship. You ever had that conversation with a person? I imagine it's like Paul talking to this Jewish brother saying like, why did you do that? And they just look at you like you're crazy. And they do. But that's true Religion. It's clinging to a righteousness not your own. It's clinging to a relationship with Christ, and it's and it's looking toward um, that great day in which you'll be resurrected and finally worship him in a way that is honored, that is honoring, ultimately honoring to his name. Is that you this morning? And in some sense, it's none of us in the way that it ought to be, right? I don't put before you this morning a a law. In which you must keep three things in which you look at and say I must be lost because I don't desire it with a passion that he is arguing, but neither do I. And isn't that why we need him all the more? Isn't that why He gave us His Spirit in the second point? So that we would continually grow in that. Is, that, is, is, is the life of God pulsing in you this morning? That, that as this message is preached and the text is read and Paul um, strives with your hearts, do you, do you long for Him more? That's the real question. But have you been justified in righteousness I'm given to you? Have you been reconciled with God? And as you commune with Him, you're driven towards that great hope, not only there, but also here, to be more like Him. If so, then you are in right company, church. You are on good ground this morning with Christ. But if not, and the Bible this morning is a book of morals, you know, that Jesus Christ, Is nothing more than George Washington. Something that you read on a page. There's no lively union communion. There's no desire to grow. There's no hope in the resurrection. There's a clinging to everything here. There's no willingness to sell it all and to follow Jesus. And I'm not sure that you have Christ at all. Because this is what He does for and in His people. Not making perfect people, but perfecting them as they go. And I would pray this morning that you and would see that great treasure that's in the field. And that you would sell all. That you might have Christ and follow Him. And recognize that you're not losing anything at all. That you're gaining eternity. Why? Because to know Him is eternal life. John chapter 17, verse number 1. So I beg you to appropriate Him and to believe on Him this morning by faith. Put your trust and faith in Christ. Lean on Him. Rest in Him. Drink of the water of life freely. Take of that bread. Put, Take it in you. Share with Christ. And you will glory with the Apostle as well as with the saints all around you. That is my prayer for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the glory that is in Christ. Father, we thank You for all of Christ. Father, we thank You and praise You that there is an inexhaustible volume of Christ's blessings that we will never plumb the depths of in this life. Father, that our our life will be characterized by a treasure hunt of unearthing those riches until we finally see Him face to face. What a joy You've given us, Father, in Your Son. What a blessing we have in Christ. May it be the ever-increasing pursuit of our own souls that we could say with the Apostle that it is my desire that I may know Him. Father, in the power of His resurrection as much as in the, the um, fellowship of His sufferings, that if it means I know more of Christ, then Father, deliver it to us in full measure. Father, we need that because we can't accomplish it in and of ourselves. Father, we need more of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the incalculable worth of the gospel and everything that's contained within, that we would continue, Father, with resolve to sell all that we have, that we might follow Christ, to abandon ourselves, our rights, our privileges, that we might find eternal riches and privileges and treasure in Christ. I pray that that would be the testimony not only of us as individuals, but also of this church. Father, I pray that Christ would be lively in communion with this church even now. Father, I trust that your son is walking among the candlesticks, trimming the wicks, refilling the oil, and accomplishing that high priesthood ministry, Father, that he is so devoted and dedicated to. I praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit this morning, Father, for the ministry of the Son, and I am so thankful that he is more committed Um, to my salvation than I am. Because I know that without that, without the power of the Spirit, I'd be lost. So Father, thank You for Your ministry in and to us, through Your Son and through Your Spirit. And we pray, Father, that that You would give us all the more, whatever it takes, however You decide. Father, bring us into deeper communion with Christ. May the life of God flow through this branch that you have engrafted into the root, which is Christ. And may all the world know, Father, may all the world know that there is a Lord in heaven. And may they either turn, Father, or reject Him as a result of it. Um, But may they not go into the next life without hearing or seeing that. Father, we thank you for the time we have together and pray that you minister to the saints as well as those who are without Christ, Father, in the manner that you have decided. And we trust you, Father, to bring the fruit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, will stand and sing. Number 177, in Christ alone. Number 177, in Christ alone.